0: Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter three Luke's Gospel chapter three, and we are um, finishing up the last few verses here that deal with the unfolding of John the Baptist' the beginning of his ministry It's a great section because it gives us really what ought to be for all ministries the the prerequisite mark of a faithful ministry. if you had to move ...out of the area and go into another area and you were trying to find a church and you wanted to know what to look for, you could look for a lot of things that might secure your interest, but but if you wanted to boil down a faithful ministry to one prerequisite, one overarching mark, you could say that biblical ministry, or again in today's uh, terminology, gospel-centered ministry, if it's truly gospel-centered, will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ... A faithful ministry will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about they name His name and then, and then you, you find no submission to Him in the midst of the body. I'm not talking about redefining the person of Christ so that uh, He's a mere shadow of the Bible's revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the exaltation and worship of Jesus Christ as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. A church marked by the deliberate attention to give... The Lord Jesus Christ, the honor that He has been given by His Father and that is revealed to us in His Word. That is to say, when you go to a ministry and you wanted to see the benchmark, the, the place where the bar is set, it is set by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And a church that, that exalts and worships Him in all that He has revealed Himself to be is a church you want to trust. And so when we say exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, we we mean that in that church you ought to find an attentiveness to the holiness of Christ as the standard by which everyone in the church should live. It should be the model for every believer, not comparisons with one another, though we ought to elevate the mature and have them help the immature. But Christ as his holy character modeled for us in the church, that should be what the church strives to do. That's how we exalt Christ, to follow his holy character, to be conformed to his image. A church that exalts Christ speaks often of his death and resurrection as the center of the gospel, the bullseye of the gospel, if you will. The message of hope and forgiveness revolves around the atoning death of Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. A church that downplays or minimizes such things or redefines them is not, a, is not to be trusted. When we say that a church exalts the Lord Jesus Christ, what we mean is they exalt His absolute lordship over His people as the joy and the duty of their submission. The lordship of Christ over His church. When we say they exalt Christ, we mean that They exalt His worthiness to be praised. And that's the passionate overflow of our hearts and our corporate worship. The worthiness of Christ to be praised above all else. When a church exalts Jesus Christ, they exalt His Word. They exalt His Word. They exalt it by listening to it, by coming under it, by explaining it, by thinking about it, reading it, meditating upon it, pondering it, uh, believing it, imbibing it in their life, thinking about it, instructing in it. Teaching others to observe all that He said. Living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what it means to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. As the essential life-giving food for our souls, we exalt His Word. The church that exalts Christ, exalts His bride, loves the church as the family we belong to. And the fellowship of our sacrificial service to one another. A church that exalts Christ, exalts His coming in power and glory. That is the hope and the longing of our hearts. That's a church you can trust. The church that exalts Jesus Christ is a church that exalts Christ's reign with His people. That's what captivates us. That's why we're in wonder, love, and awe. Because our imaginations are captivated by the reign of Christ with His people. And then we exalt all that He has revealed Himself to be as the King who will reign forever. And that means that when we exalt Christ, we also exalt Him as judge. We exalt Him as judge. The one worthy to judge all who've rejected Him. That is the motivating urgency of our ministry. That is the evangelistic drive of our prayers and our proclamations. So the the bar is set at the exaltation of Christ. And that is to say, we exalt His holiness, His gospel, His lordship, His worthiness, His word, His church, His return, His reign, His judgment. and And so much of Ministry that goes on today, so much of evangelical church life has nothing to do with Christ-centered focus that I just described. Much of today's ministry is centered on manufacturing some sort of curb appeal so the world doesn't get angry with us. or, Or mobilizing people and resources to keep society from social deprivation to cause human beings to flourish in common grace and then leave it at that. To focus energies on fighting culture wars primarily. A church that centers its focus on being cool, trendy, obsessing over size and scope, equating success with sheer numbers. Or emotion-driven worship experiences that people want to string one after another together in order to call it a faithful ministry. And then there are convenience-oriented churches where the sermon is very, very convenient. The body life is convenient. No demands placed on one's life. Talk about your felt needs. Cater to those things that we like. Send out surveys. Find out what people who live in the world want. Give it to them. Why am I emphasizing all this? Because when we come to this text, John the Baptist sets the bar where it ought to be. He sets the bar where it ought to be with regard to preaching Christ. In the opening days of his ministry, he preached repentance. He preached faith in Christ alone. He set the ministry bar where God intended it to be. He exalted Christ in his preaching. He talked about his identity. He talked about his work. He talked about his mission, his offer of salvation. He extolled his glory. He called people to repent and believe only in him. And every faithful ministry since the coming of Christ and the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of His Father does the same thing and is, is trustworthy if that's their focus. Our church life should never drop below the bar set here with the very first preacher announcing the coming of Christ. And he sets the bar where it ought to be. And Before I read these few verses here that, that we're going to explore for a little bit, just sort of bringing us up to speed, John has already come on the scene with a a daring message. And the thesis of his message was, look, whatever is between you and Christ, whatever the obstacle is, you must confront that or you will never find forgiveness. And when they came out in droves to the edge of the wilderness after he had been brought out to be the forerunner and The Holy Spirit had moved upon him that it was now time, and he started preaching, and the cities came out, even the religious leaders. He was preaching a very dangerous and daring message to the human heart. And it was basically this, repent unto forgiveness. Prepare your heart by believing in Christ. Be baptized as a show that you are willing to forsake the old life, And embrace Christ alone. Stop your self-reliance. Stop your religious overtures and rituals. Stop your uh, love of the world. Stop your selfish living. Come to Christ by turning from all of those acts of pride and self-worship. Doesn't matter whether it's religious or irreligious. He says you must turn and some of them got the message because they started asking him, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? From every walk of life, there he was a preacher and he was getting the Q&A going and people were saying, well, then what do I do? And instead of giving them some sort of, hey, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Just, just believe the word. Just say the word. Say the prayer. Come forward. Do all that kind of stuff. Instead of giving them that message, he, he pointed at the ones asking the question and said, here's your obstacle. You must forsake that. Oh, And by the way, here's your obstacle, and you must forsake that. You have that kind of behavior in your life, you need to forsake that. You're not working your way to heaven. You're truly bringing forth genuine repentance, sorrow, and a 180 turn. And you remember, if you were with us last time, they were asking him those questions, and Verse 10, the crowds were saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer them, the man who has two tunics, share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. In other words, stop being selfish. Unselfishly love. Man, that would have cut him to the heart. They had already justified themselves. I treat people nice. I'm pretty decent. What are you picking on that for? I mean, don't I get a little in life? If I give up everything and deny myself, I'll get no satisfaction in life. He says, no, that's the very thing standing between you and Christ. Get rid of it. And then they asked Him again. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, what shall we do? Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Stop extorting. What? That's my living. That's my income. And how the mind just sort of blame shifts and works its way around what we're called to do in genuine repentance. And John the Baptist says, you have integrity in your heart. Stop it. You need to have integrity. Stop doing what you're doing. And then the soldiers showed up. Even some soldiers were questioning him, What about us? What do we do? And he said, Don't take money from anyone by force and accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Be kind and content, pierced, cut across the grain. It's pretty daring. We come to this last section in verses 15-20 to and, and he starts to hone in on what the central issue is in faithful proclamation. Faithful proclamation and exaltation of Jesus Christ has this as its central feature. All mankind will answer to Him. Every soul will answer to Christ. That is the central issue in ministry. The reason we exalt Christ is not because we've sort of conjured up a way to do religion that's different than everyone else. We exalt Christ because of what is said here in 15 to 20. Every soul will answer to Him and Him alone. So any ministry that diminishes that or or doesn't highlight that or skirts around that or talks in softer tones than that is not a ministry to be trusted. John the Baptist's preaching set the bar. Let me read 15 to 20. Follow along. While the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing forks in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to his rap sheet. That's my translation. He locked John up in prison. Stop right there. What you have here is John taking his thesis and his preaching ministry's central feature to its most precise point. All mankind will answer to Christ. This is his passion. This is John's urgency. Jesus Christ is the one to whom every soul will give an account. That's what drove his preaching ministry And I suspect if he were a pastor today of his own church, it would be the first authentic, first Baptist church, wouldn't it? Anyway, this would be his thesis. This would be where the bar is set. This would be it right here. Everyone will answer to Christ. And from what he preaches to the crowds here, what I want to do is just draw out these four marks of preaching Christ in a ministry. These four characteristics, these four marks of preaching Christ in the ministry. What effect does it have? What is the central uh, message that it gives? What does it say about us? What does it say about Christ? You want to find a good church? If they focus on the exaltation of Christ in these basic frameworks, then you have a trustworthy ministry. First Mark. Preaching Christ breaks up hardened soil. Preaching Christ breaks up the hardened soil of the human heart. Verse 15. While people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Listen, first of all, just just sort of pulling a principle out here of what you see, what we notice about John's preaching is that He unflinchingly spoke of the supremacy of Christ, and that was the instrument God used. This is what makes ministry and proclamation effective. This is what turns over the soil of the human heart. This is what softens the dirt. This is what makes the soil receptive to the gospel, is the preaching, the unflinching proclamation of Christ. The exaltation of His person, and by the way, His judgment, as we'll see in a little while. Notice they were in a state of expectation. For what? Well, obviously, they'd heard John speaking familiar Old Testament language. First of all, he wore prophet's clothes, so clearly they they knew he was claiming to be like an Old Testament prophet. He spoke of the coming of Messiah and the kingdom. He preached repentance and impending judgment, which was very familiar terminology for prophets of old. And he was preaching out in the wilderness, so surely some people connected him with Isaiah's prophecy of being a voice crying in the wilderness. John himself later connects himself with that when the Pharisees question him, as recorded in John's Gospel. And God was using John's unvarnished preaching to prepare hearts as God had promised. And people indeed became expectant. Now, clearly, when he started preaching on the edge of the wilderness, the whole entire culture could have said, ah, who in the world is that lunatic? And, you know, that sometimes happened in the history of God's people as he judged them. Jeremiah preached, and God said, you're not going to have one convert. Why? Because God was judging his people. And his, their rejection, summarily, of Jeremiah's ministry would be used later by God as divine justice against them. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes you can preach to a co-worker and they will reject and all it's going to mean is that when they die in their sins and they face Christ, your testimony, your proclamation, your opening of the Word of God and their rejection of it will be the justice of God against them in that day. It's a tragic reality, but you can be summarily dismissed. But God does promise to use the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the the instrument that tills and softens the soil. And by the way, listen, there is no other instrument. Your cleverness, our ability to turn phrases, attractive curb appeal of a ministry, the the, the buzzing of money and buildings and, and activity, the appearance of success, all of that is not promised as an instrument that God uses. What He uses is the straightforward, unvarnished, bare gospel of Jesus Christ. The exaltation of His Son, the Savior. That's what God uses. And what you find here is that promise that God made. Hey, I'm going to send one. He's going to cry in the wilderness and it's going to turn hearts back to God in Israel. It's happening. If John the Baptist had come and used some other method, if he tried some other clever tactic, if because of a fear of man, he tried to get in with the religious leaders and, and, and make some relationships first that, that might give some, some pathway that was a little simpler, wouldn't have happened. He wasn't called to do that. He was called to proclaim. And guess what? People became expectant. Not everyone was willing to believe. Some were just curious. Some were curious and they would later prove to be uninterested. Some would turn quickly to unrepentant defiance. There would be some who heard what he said. It cut them to the quick. They weren't willing to turn. They weren't willing to embrace Christ, especially the religious leaders, and they just said, I'm done with you. Did that bother John the Baptist? Not at all. It was grief to him But it was exactly what he expected the Word of God to do. Sometimes it softens, sometimes it hardens. But if you think you're going to soften hearts with any other instrument than the exaltation of the glory of Christ, you are making a grave error. Ministry is about our living for Christ, submitting to Christ, exalting Christ, teaching and preaching the name of Christ, elevating His Word, and bringing our hearts and minds under the Word of Christ, praising Christ, and warning people of the judgment of Christ. That's ministry. We are God's instrument. John the Baptist was preaching so that people would anticipate the first arrival of the Messiah. We preach today so that people will anticipate and get stirred up about the second arrival of Christ. In fact, you know how Peter says it when he talks about our proclamation? Proclamation. He says it comes from us looking for the coming of the day of the Lord, uh, and it's in a context of judgment. Second Peter chapter three. Look there for just a moment. We'll be back at Luke in, in just a second. But Second Peter chapter three, it's a passage on judgment, and Peter speaks of our motivation behind our preaching. Notice Second Peter three verse ten: The day of the Lord will come like a thief. "...in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, here it is, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat?" But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's what's happening in a faithful ministry. They're looking for the coming of God and and our Excitement about it, our anticipation of it, our proclamation of Christ stirs up the expectation of the watching world around us. Some to hostility, some to softening. It's an amazing thing God does when He gets you and I out of the way and makes us mouthpieces. And ministries today get so sidetracked by trying to manufacture attraction so that the world will become interested in Jesus Instead of just continually exalting Jesus Christ by preaching Him, proclaiming Him, praising Him, striving to live a holy life. Some preaching today leaves people with no expectation at all. You can go to a ministry and expect what? Expect the return of Christ? Why? I mean, my church, all they do is talk about the things that... I like to talk about. All they talk about is the convenient things that I want to talk about. That's, that's what I'm interested in is, is how I'm feeling right now and temporal things. How can I get away with having this in this life and a little satisfaction and help here and, and for, forget the eternal things. That's way off my radar. I want the temporal help right now for my convenience. Expectation of Christ's coming. What, what are you talking about? Makes no sense to me. Listen, beloved, human genius and creative innovation will never move a sinner's heart toward repentance and faith. Ever. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't change the leopard's spots. A leopard can't change his own spots. Try to spray paint a leopard. That's about what ministry tries to do today. I'm not doing anything. God doesn't promise to accommodate gimmicks He softens the soil of human hearts the same way He did when John the Baptist came on the scene. Preaching Christ breaks up hardened soil. Here's Mark number 2. Preaching Christ excludes all other so-called messiahs. Preaching Christ excludes all other so-called messiahs. Verse 16. John answered and said to them all, As for me... I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. I love that he said this. And he said it, and it got repeated, and he said it repeatedly, and it got written down, and other Gospels record it, and... And it is, of course, familiar terminology to us. But what we glean from this statement is this. John's preaching was precise. He wanted no human glory. He wanted no one to look to his own humanity, his own leadership, his own hierarchy, his own power. He didn't seek glory from men. The heart of his message was to be unmistakably Christ. The supreme object of John's sermons was Christ alone. To the exclusion of all other would-be messiahs. To the exclusion of all other paths to salvation. And to the exclusion of all other teachings that might be pawned off as truth. His teaching was precise. One is coming. He is the mighty one. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. What's he doing? I'm exalting Christ. He's the central feature of all that we do. And I have a right view of myself. I can accomplish nothing in and of myself. So at the heart of his benchmark of preaching, where he sets the bar is, look, no human institution, no human religion, no human person ever has the authority to forgive sin or demand allegiance. No individual has the personal authority to forgive sin or demand allegiance. So all systems of religion that try to say that a man can absolve someone's sin or all hierarchies that say you must sort of follow the the ascended mystery uh, leadership of the hierarchy and the religion that you're in. All all mankind that stands between Christ and His people, anyone that stands over the Word and, and gnostically says, oh, I have the ascended understanding... All that, John just does away with all of it. And all faithful ministry does away with all would be so called messiahs. I have no power to transform a dead dead heart. I have no supreme right to rule. I have no moral provenness. I have no authority to judge humanity. That's all Christ. Those are his credentials. John excluded himself from receiving glory from men. And he excluded the potential that someone might follow some system or turn John the Baptist into some religious system. Notice he says, One is coming who is mightier than I. There's the definitive mark of truly gospel-centered ministry. Christ is mightier than any human resource or power. You can tell a lot about a church. By how much they rely on the Word of God alone, the revelation of Jesus Christ can tell a lot about a church's maturity by their faith in Christ and submission to His Word. Can tell a lot about a church by their appetite for the truth, for the deep things of God. On one particular occasion, there were some leadership. Uh, leaders among the Jews, in the Jewish leadership, and they said of Jesus, you know, you cast out demons. We see that you cast out demons. But you do that by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul. That's how you do it. You, you can't be... Of God, because we're of God and you you must not be of God because you didn't come through us. And so if you're casting out demons and they're responding to you, it's because you do it by the power of the prince of demons. You get your power from Satan. And it's interesting. Look at Luke 11 at what Jesus says. Luke 11 verse 18. It's very, very interesting how Jesus argues Luke 11:18. 18, notice what he says. Look, if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? In other words, how silly is that? Satan isn't going to cast out that which he already controls because he'd be a kingdom divided against himself. It makes no sense. He would crumble. But, look at verse 20. On the other hand, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What do you mean? Notice verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor and that which he had relied on and distributes his plunder. That's a very interesting answer. Jesus says, oh, you think I cast out demons by Satan? Well, it wouldn't make any sense. Number one, it's illogical. He wouldn't cast himself out. He'd be divided and he'd crumble. But let's let's just suppose, on the other hand, that I don't do it by the kingdom of Satan. I do it by the finger of God. I'm actually the instrument in the hand of God casting out these demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And let me just illustrate that, he says, by telling you that when there's a man guarding his own house and he's got his full security going, he takes care of his own things and everything's undisturbed. But when someone comes in who's stronger than he, he's powerless. Say, what did Jesus mean? Well, he makes his point... Notice verse 22, or verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Wow, that's about as absolute as you can get on the mighty power of Jesus Christ. So when John the Baptist says there's one who is coming who's mightier than I, what he's saying is he has. All authority. He can cast out demons. He he has authority over the supernatural world. Nature. All of it. I don't have any of that. I'm just a human. And Jesus made His point to to the Jewish leadership. Look, I can cast out demons because you're the guy guarding your own house and relying on your own strength. When I come along, I overpower all that. You know what the implication is? If you're not with me, I'll be the strong man that plunders you in the judgment. If you don't gather with me, then you're not gathering with the one who has the power to gather, and so you're going to be scattered in the judgment. That is a shocking declaration of power. That's why John the Baptist says, One who's coming, who is mightier than I. And notice how John views himself. Back to Luke 3. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. All John is saying is, look, I'm an unworthy slave of my master, Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of highest praise and sacrificial service. I may be a prophet. In fact, Jesus says he's the greatest prophet that ever lived because he came to announce the Messiah. And he may be a great prophet among men, but he's not the one who reveals God. Jesus, the ultimate prophet of prophets, reveals the Father. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of God, that is to say, Jesus Christ, He alone explains the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, He told the disciples. John the Baptist may be the forerunner to announce the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah. He's nothing compared to the Messiah Himself. John would later say, look, when the bridegroom comes along, The best man doesn't start pointing to himself. Hey, stop looking at the bridegroom. Look at me. John chapter 3, you can read it. He starts rejoicing over the voice of the bridegroom. Finally, the bridegroom's here. I want to hear his voice. I want him on display. He and his wedding to his bride. That's what I want. You know how he explains it? Look, he who is of what's above is above all things. He who is of the earth is just part of the earth. I'm just part of the earth. I came from the earth. That's... That's my resource, that's as far as it goes. But he who is from heaven is above all. So he must increase, and I must decrease. So faithful preaching, the mark of John the Baptist ministry was that it turned over the soil as God had promised. It creates anticipation. God uses it as an instrument to save souls. And Preaching Christ, like John did, also excludes all other so-called messiahs. Here's Mark number 3, and this is getting to the heart of it. Mark number 3, Preaching Christ is the proclamation of both redemption and retribution. That's a mouthful. Preaching Christ is the proclamation of both redemption and retribution. The end of verse 16. This one who is coming... He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And His winnowing fork is in His hand to thoroughly clear His threshing floor, to gather the wheat into His barn, and He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The mark of Christ-exalting preaching is that it reveals Christ in His Word as He's revealed Himself to be. It doesn't try to soften who Christ is. This mark of preaching Christ is that people will have to face the message of forgiveness in Christ as well as the message of judgment by Christ. Both. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's interesting. Here you have listeners, and what would they have understood when they heard him say the Holy Spirit and fire? And and commentators just run a race all over the place. Some of the discussion is just a lot of reading for very little payoff. Some of the scholarship is excellent and helpful and maybe profitable. But it seems to me that we have some help from... From the Old Testament context, and though we don't have time to go over those texts, I'll just mention to you that a listener hearing him talk about the Holy Spirit wasn't totally confused. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. He figures in the Old Testament. The term was known in the Old Testament and in Jewish thought. It is there in Psalm 51, in David's prayer, Isaiah 63. Uh, It's in the Psalms. It's in Song of Solomon. The Spirit of God uh, was not unfamiliar to those who were familiar with the Old Testament. And the coming of the Spirit in the last days is, is well documented in the Old Testament. Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 39, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the inauguration of a a new covenant era where the Holy Spirit's going to actually live inside of believers and empower them. That was familiar uh, imagery coming from the Old Testament. Joel 2, the prophet spoke of it. Peter repeats it in the book of Acts. It's also true that the Holy Spirit's coming and dealing with His people involved not just the idea of empowering or even regenerating, but the idea of cleansing Isaiah 4 verse 4 speaks of the, the, the judgment of God being a cleansing time and involves the spirit and fire. Both together that imagery was there. So a first century Jew listening to John the Baptist, or maybe even a, a well-informed Gentile in Palestine, they understood that when the spirit would come, there'd be a pouring out and it would be involving cleansing and salvation and even the activities of conviction and judgment. That was imagery John was drawing from. And being baptized with the Holy Spirit is a reference to the indwelling and the empowering of the Spirit of God and the new covenant. And Jesus, when, the, when He's about to ascend... Acts 1 verse 5 says to the disciples, look, just as John the Baptist said, he baptizes with water, but one who is coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus himself interprets it and makes the connection. This is the indwelling and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. This is the regenerating power and work of the Spirit of God. It's not unfamiliar territory. Peter, when he's talking about what happened to the Gentiles, And it's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 16. He's reporting to Antioch what happened to the Gentiles. He says, look, just like John the Baptist said, I'll baptize you with water, but one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It happened to the Gentiles. They're converted. They're indwelt. They're empowered. So who am I to argue with God? So even Peter pulls John the Baptist's statement into the idea that the Holy Spirit will do this indwelling and empowering work. So John's preaching of Christ focused on the power of God, listen, to bring a dead heart to life. And I love that because it, again, sets the bar for us. Our preaching ought to be on the power of God to change someone's heart. But his preaching also included the warning the warning of impending eternal judgment that would surely come upon anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. Notice, he says he will baptize you with fire. He's talking to the crowd. He's not specifying who. Clearly, he means Christ Christ rejecters because verse 17, he's got his winnowing fork in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. There are the believers... And he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There are the unbelievers. And notice it's Christ that you must deal with. (laughs) These are all emphatic pronouns in here. The end of verse 16, he himself literally will baptize you. And then notice 17, he is the one whose winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff, he will burn up with unquenchable fire. It's inherent in the verb. So you you have this unmistakable message of John the Baptist. You must face Christ on his terms, either unto life or unto death. And the imagery here is not hard to figure. I know when you read unfamiliar terms like that from the farming community, if you don't have an agrarian background, you kind of go, oh, threshing floor. Oh, and you freeze up in your Bible study and you don't know what to do. And it's not that hard to figure out. Farmers who, who know anything about wheat, they just take the winnowing fork and they take the wheat and into the wind they just throw it into the air. And as they throw it into the air, the heavy wheat falls right at their feet and the chaff kind of blows. And as the chaff blows, it's away from the wheat that falls to the floor. And when they're all done, just sifting all of that with the fork, they, they push all the heads of wheat to the side and gather it up. And then the chaff, they pile up and they light it on fire because it's headless; it doesn't have actual grain, and it's just chaff. It's just the coverings, empty. That's the imagery. Unquenchable fire here. Punishment. Jesus Christ Himself. Don't don't miss it. Jesus. Oh yes, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Not if you reject Christ. He has a terrible plan for your life. If you reject Him. And he himself will do the separating. That's, the, that's a faithful ministry that tells people: won't you be forgiven? Won't you turn from your sin? I don't want you to face what is coming. Christ is going to bring his true grain to himself, and the chaff's going to be piled up, and Christ is going to eternally punish. It's unquenchable. So, a faithful ministry preaches Christ like John the Baptist did. So that people are called to repent and believe. They're warned if they don't repent. They'll face Christ in judgment. He's going to separate them from His true children. There are no second chances. And it ought to make you cringe. People get so upset if the church says anything about hell. Ah, fire and brimstone. By the way, those are Bible terms. Just, you know. Don't buy the caricature that's been created that we get lumped into. Fire and brimstone comes from Revelation. It is a description of hell. And an apt description because hell's torment and punishment and fire, not only on one's conscience, but also some sort of eternal burning and torment. uh, it, It is there and it's an apt description to have this intense heat and and punishment God chose it God fashioned it it will satisfy his wrath and frighteningly it is unending there will be no end to it and so it is an apt description and and you know I realize that there is a kind of harsh contempt for the world that some ministries so called have and so they get they get they make up the caricature of of hell, fire, and brimstone type preaching where they, they harshly condescend to people in the world with a sort of a contempt because they hate people in the world. They, they actually are afraid of them and they'd like them all to go away and so it's us four no more. Shut the door. No one else can... can we're, we've come to Christ. You're all the evil ones. And, and ministries kind of take on that flavor. That's not what John the Baptist was doing and it certainly shouldn't characterize any true exalting of Christ kind of ministry because to exalt Christ is to produce humility. Compassion, pleading, warning, love. That's what it should produce. But it, it isn't a minimizing of this reality that Jesus Himself will judge. You want to hear how Peter put it in Second Peter 1? After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict His people Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Uh, That's stark language. Retribution is a word used. It means to give full punishment. And Jesus Himself never minimized the issue. Matthew twenty-three, thirteen to 36 he, he comes against the scribes and Pharisees and declared that they would be condemned to hell if they died in their sins. Verse 33 He promised Chorazin and Bethsaida that they'd be fearfully judged more than the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon. Matthew 11 He even said in Mark 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble or to go into sin. Be better for them if a heavy millstone was hung around their neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. And he said of Judas, he would have been better off unborn. Wow, that's striking language. Jesus never minimized the warning because one day we're going to arrive and that day is going to be here and Jesus is going to be on His throne and the separation is going to begin and time for witnessing will be over and there He is. The judge of the universe, Christ Himself, will have been exalted in some people's lives and rejected in others. Where will your evangelism be then if you never warned anybody? The final mark... We don't have time, but it's so simple. Here's the final mark. I'll give it to you. Preaching Christ will inevitably bring trouble. <laughs> preaching Christ will inevitably bring trouble. Look at verse 18. So, with many other exhortations, <laughs> he preached the gospel to the people. Verse 19, when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him. By the way, this happens later. Luke just brings it in here to show us the effect of John the Baptist's preaching. When Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, with whom he had committed adultery, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. Look, we're tempted to fear what the world will do if we preach Christ without compromise, but that isn't the issue. Of course, we're padded in this culture, and so therefore we're afraid. Of course, but the Lord can give us strength and courage to not be afraid. But when you preach and exalt Christ, you will be persecuted, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. If you desire to live godly, you're going to tell people, hey, you must deal with Jesus. Stop all this religious pretense. Stop all this emotionalism. Stop all this uh, felt needs kind of ministry. Stop attending church just to attend church. Stop trying to salve your conscience. Stop self-atoning in that false religion. Stop that because you're going to face Jesus one day. And here's the message. He can forgive your sin if you'll turn and repent. He will forgive you. He will cover you with His righteousness. He will will save you. But you must turn from your self-worship and come to Him in real faith and want to serve Him as Lord and Master of your life or else. Because if you don't, there's coming a day you're going to give an account. And are you going to be wheat or chaff? And that's that's how we love people. Whatever trouble it brings, so be it. We ask God for the courage, right? What a ministry bar. That's where it's set. And we pray God helps us keep it, keep it right there. We exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow with me. Father, thank You for Your penetrating narrative of John's ministry. Wow, what a powerful preacher He was. And yet, none to His credit, but all to Yours. Your Spirit's anointing within Him. The courage to obey. He was a mere man, but He was resolved because of faith. And You strengthened that faith and kept Him unstained by the world. And Lord, here we are preaching so that hearts will be softened and anticipate Your second coming in judgment. You've already died. You've already paid for sin. You've already rose from the dead. You've you've already been exalted to the right hand of the Father. You've sent Your Spirit. We are indwelt and empowered by You. We have the mind your mind, we have the mind of Christ. We can have supernatural courage. We can focus on your word and exalt you in our praises and proclaim you as you desire to be proclaimed. And Lord, there's so much that appears to be successful ministry and and we don't know the heart of these things. We just know that where Christ is diminished and where His right to rule, His absolute authority, His atoning work, and His coming judgment are diminished or downplayed. There is a weakening of ministry, starving of God's true people. And there is an opportunity for hypocrisy to grow and apostasy to rise up. So help us to stay faithful as a ministry, to have love for souls. And where we, give, we get opportunities, may we be proclaimers of forgiveness in Christ or else judgment. And may we plead with people to be reconciled to You in Christ alone. Thank You for saving us, Lord. We don't deserve it. Thank you for moving upon our hearts and causing the scales to fall from our eyes. Thank you that you've created an appetite in us for the truth. May we not sin our way into weakness, but strive to be like you, our Savior, in whose name we ask it. Amen.